Um, about three years ago now, I um, took up golf. Well, I kind of went back to it because I played as a kid and then didn't really play much. And uh, if you play golf, it is the most wonderful game, but it's almost the most infuriating game ever made. Um, someone wisely once said, golf is 95% failure. You know that? I don't know why we keep going back and playing it again when you just come home demoralized, but you do. And uh, if you play golf, one of the most frustrating shots you can hit is called the top. You top the golf ball, which means you hit the top half of the ball, and it kind of just splatters in front, doesn't go very far. It's terrible when you're playing with mates and you're on the tee and you think, right, I'm going to wallop this down the fairway. And then you top it and it goes about 20 yards. It's nothing worse. Anyway, I had no idea really what I was doing. Uh, but I had some golf lessons. And um, went and had these lessons. And they're very good because you get video and everything. And, and they put lines on your head and by your side to show you exactly where you're going. And it was only until I had those golf lessons I realized why it is that you top the golf ball. It's very simple. But... As you swing back, if you swing through and you come up as you're coming down, the club is not going to return to where it started. And so you just clip the top of the golf ball and off it goes. But I didn't know this. But when a guy put a line on my head on the video and you could see, you could see my head would just rise up like this. It all became clear. Now I'd like to say it, it changed everything and eradicated the top from my golf game. Sadly, that has not happened. Um, it still creeps in every so often. But it helped me to see what was going on. And I wonder if you've ever experienced something like that before. Not necessarily to do with golf, but you've, you've seen something or you've grasped something that you didn't previously see or understand. It all suddenly became clear. Maybe you've heard something, some words coming out of someone's mouth, but you've not really heard them. Often it's a problem in relationships, isn't it? That one person might hear the words but they don't really understand what's going on behind it. And usually, without sounding too stereotypical, it's the bloke in a relationship that is guilty of that one. Well, in that passage from Luke, uh, we see the same kind of thing. We see some people who, who get it, who see. Sorry, some who don't get it. And someone who does. Now, it's important to remember um, that a lot Luke focuses a lot in his gospel on the kingdom. Um, I believe last week you had an all-age service, didn't you? And Tom um, asked people to yell out, or he had lots of props saying how Jesus teaches about the kingdom, what it's like. You know, things like it's like a mustard seed or a, a farmer or some treasure. Uh, many more, I'm sure. And so the kingdom of God is very important to Luke. It's a big theme. And essentially, the kingdom of God is where there is a king. Um, the kingdom Jesus talks about is not a place. It's not a thing. The kingdom is wherever the king reigns. And that's in people's lives. Where they live with Jesus as the king. And as we just go through these verses, I just want us to keep that vision of the kingdom um, in mind. There's two sections to this passage that we're going to briefly look at. First section, verse 31 to 34. Where Jesus, verse 31, makes this very clear statement. We're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him, spit on him. They'll flog him and kill him. On the third day he'll rise again. Now we read that now and go, that's pretty clear, isn't it? You know, Jesus here calls himself the Son of Man. It's a, a title that he often used for himself. And it goes back to the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel. 
where there's this vision of this figure called the Son of Man. And the Son of Man ascends up to heaven and receives authority. And so by taking this title, Jesus is saying very clearly he is the king. And his kingdom, he says, centers on the cross. But then we read the disciples don't understand any of this. They probably hear the words coming out of Jesus' mouth, but they don't understand it. Now, I'm a big cricket fan as well as a golf fan, basically any sport really. And um, I don't know if you've ever tried to explain cricket to somebody, but it's, uh, it can be quite a difficult process, especially uh, if you're trying to do it someone who's American, which I've done very many times because my wife is American. Um, cricket, when you explain it to someone, might sound something like this. You have two sides, one out in the field and one in. Each man that's in, the side that's in goes out, and when he's out, he comes in, and the next man goes in until he's out. When they're all out, the side that's out comes in, and the side that's been in goes out and tries to get those coming in out. Sometimes you get men still in and not out. When a man goes out to go in, the men who are out try to get him out, and when he's out, he goes in, and the next man in goes out and goes in. There are two men called umpires who stay out all the time, and they decide when the men who are in are out. When both sides have been in and all the men have got out, and both sides have been out twice after all the men have been in, including those who are not out, that's the end of the game. It's simple, that's not even going into the rules of it. That's not even explaining LBW, but that's, you know, you might hear that and think, in the same way, the disciples, they heard Jesus' words, but they didn't have a clue what was going on. They didn't understand any of this. They're blind to what Jesus says, partly because of their, their own lack of understanding. Partly because what Jesus says doesn't match their expectations of the Messiah. And partly because God has to reveal this to them through faith. You know, at Houghton at the moment, we're looking at Mark's gospel. And last week, we just got to the point where Jesus is um, arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And um, just before that, he'd also made another prediction about his death. Um, anyway, I don't know if you recall, but the people that come to arrest Jesus, they come armed with swords and clubs. They are ready for a fight. And clearly one of Jesus' followers is ready for a fight because he's carrying a knife because he, he cut someone's ear off. Most people, including Jesus' disciples, believed that the kingdom he was talking about was an earthly one. The Messiah was this figure who would come and restore Israel, the nation, to glory and to rule, and violence was invariably going to be involved in that. That was their understanding of the kingdom. And so when Jesus says it's centered on the cross, it doesn't resonate at all. They don't even think, oh, what, what did you just say then, Jesus? Sorry, could you just say that again? We can say that they are spiritually blind. Just a reflection on this. This is helpful for us because it can help us to understand why it is that our friends and family who don't yet know Jesus Christ don't believe. You might have a great conversation with a friend or a family member about Jesus Christ. They might come along to a Hope Explored course that run here at St. Luke's or, or a talk or something. And, and they listen and they hear, but there's just no response. You might get at the end, oh, you might ask them, how did that go? What did you think about that? And they think, well, oh, it was interesting. They're spiritually blind. And it happens. And so what we must be praying for those we love is that the Holy Spirit would enable them to see Jesus Christ and grasp who he is. You can't argue somebody into a relationship with Jesus. Of course, it's important to discuss and to answer questions and have those chats. But ultimately, 
It's a work of the Holy Spirit who makes people see Jesus. Paul, in uh, his letter to the Ephesians, talks about the eyes of our heart. He's got this great imagery of there being eyes on our hearts to be opened. Well, that's what we need to be praying. I wonder as well, as Christians, as we think about this, are there areas in our own lives, um, areas of, of sin that we might be blind to, that we haven't seen ourselves? David prays in Psalm 51, create in me a pure heart. Are we praying that the Lord would be working in our lives to see where we can grow in our relationship with Christ? And that takes a work of the Spirit. Second section, verses 35 to 43. Um, immediately, the disciples, they get a lesson on how you see Jesus. Uh, they're heading to Jericho and there's a blind man on the side of the road, and we're told they're told by the crowd. He's told, sorry, by the crowd that Jesus of Nazareth is coming by, and so he yells out, "Son of David, have mercy on me." It's another title for Jesus, the Son of David, that he uses. And David, you remember, he was Israel's greatest king in the Old Testament, and the Messiah, this figure who was promised, was going to be a descendant of David, and so in calling Jesus. The son of David, he's saying that Jesus is the Messiah and the king of all kings. It's interesting to me that the crowd only see Jesus as a man. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, they say. It's kind of like saying Stephen of Houghton. Not you really ever say that or I refer to myself as that, but you get the point, right? But this man, he calls Jesus the son of David. He sees who Jesus is. Anyway, the people, they tell this guy off. They tell him, look, be quiet. Don't bother Jesus. Leave him alone. They think Jesus hasn't got time for someone like him. But he shouts even more loudly, son of David. And amazingly, Jesus stops. And he asks this man, what do you want me to do for you? I suppose if you think of a famous person walking um, through a crowd of people on their way somewhere, and people are yelling their name and Saying, come here, please stop, come stop, come speak to me. Come, let me grab a photo, whatever it is. It's, it's pretty rare that, that famous person would stop. But what Jesus does is the same as though someone from the royal family is walking past crowds of people cheering their name and a, and a homeless person who's in a right state cries out, prince or princess, come here. And they go and they stop and they meet the person. That's what Jesus does. And it shows us just how kind and compassionate he is. He's on the way to Jerusalem to die. He has got big things on his mind. And yet he stops. He's so gentle and so kind. And this man, he asks for his sight. And Jesus says to him, look, your faith in me has healed you. This man has seen who Jesus is, and through his faith, he is healed. And the man receives his sight, and he gets a, a new life following Christ, a new outlook, a new vision. It's interesting that this man sees before he sees. Even prior to having his sight restored, he saw who Jesus really is, and sits in complete contrast to the crowd who see physically but not spiritually. I wonder as well what this man was thinking 
when he was able to see Jesus. You know, when you hear someone on the radio, when you see them in the flesh, they never look like what you think they would, do you? Maybe that's just me, I don't know. Was this man expecting someone in, in royal clothes with an entourage around him? Well, as he opened his eyes, he simply got an average-looking man, a dust-stained traveller on his way to Jerusalem, and yet he follows Jesus. Just some reflections on this. This blind man, I think he really teaches us some important truths about prayer. Whilst this teaching isn't about prayer, um, this man talking to Jesus, this man is talking to Jesus, and we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can do the same. So what can we learn? Well, first of all, persistence. He doesn't give up, does he? He's got nothing. He realizes his need, and he yells out. People tell him to be quiet, and yet he still yells out even more loudly. And he could very easily have just given up. But he is determined and resolved to get Jesus' attention. You know, kids have a habit of being persistent, don't they? Dad, 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 dad. You know, this man is persistent and shows us that we too should be persistent in our praying to keep coming back to Christ. You know, I'm much more likely to get grumpy when my kids yell my name over and over again or just shush them away. Jesus will never do that. Our prayers might not be answered how we think, but Jesus never not wants to listen to Second thing, boldness. My dad always taught me that you don't get anything unless you ask for it. Um, and so I'm pretty shameful when it comes to asking for discounts and all that kind of thing. I haven't quite got to the level yet of going to Tesco or something and having a shop that comes 100 quid and go, I'll give you 80. I haven't quite done that. Um, but my, my brother as well, this is probably where my dad gets it. Well, I get it from my dad. But he tells the story of a time when my dad saw this famous British boxer called Alan Minter. Have you heard of him? Yeah, I've got some yeses. I have no idea who he is. Um, anyway, my brother tells a story. My dad just goes right on up to him as though they're best mates. They've never met before. And, uh, you know, embraces him and shakes his hand. Alan, Alan, how you doing? And my brother is just dying watching this happen. But my dad was bold. This blind man is bold. He's approaching who he knows as the son of David, the king of kings of the universe. And he approaches him like he's known him for years. There's no shame. And so are we bold in our approach to God in prayer? As we come to God the Father through Christ the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are we bold? Or do we come with some kind of nervousness? Finally, this encounter... He finishes with this blind man, no longer blind, but following Jesus Christ and praising God. When this man received his sight, he followed Jesus, and we're told he glorified him. He wants to show off the Lord in his life. And he was so deeply grateful for what Jesus had done, he showed this off by following him. A grateful love towards Jesus is what fuels our obedience to him. We won't obey what Jesus says in his word, live his way, which can be really hard and countercultural, unless we have grasped what he has done for us. 
We love because Jesus Christ loved us first. Tom mentioned last week how you looked at the rich young ruler. That man who had everything, but he saw nothing. In golfing language, he had all the gear and no idea. The blind man, he has nothing, but he sees everything. And so may we be those who increasingly see the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this portion of your word that you've handed down to us. And we thank you for the example of this blind man, of his faith in who Jesus Christ is. I pray for each of us here that you would maybe help us for the first time to truly grasp who Jesus is and what he has done. Maybe this morning help us grasp and see areas of our lives where we're, we're hesitant and blind to you working. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you open up those eyes on our hearts so that we will love Christ more and live for him in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.